Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today with Mr. Chris Giancarlo. He was chairman of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission from 2017 to 2019, where he oversaw regulation of the futures, options, and swaps derivatives markets. Before that, he served as a CFTC commissioner from 2014 to 2017. Mr. Giancarlo has had years of experience in finance, international law, security and technology. He recently wrote a really interesting book called Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money, which talks about the future of cryptocurrency in the global economy. Crypto Dad is a fascinating book, and I'm really so pleased to have Chris Giancarlo here. So welcome to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Thanks for doing this, Chris. Dan, it's great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Could you first tell us, how did you first get started in finance? I I read the book and I love the biographical, but I'd love to hear it from you. I'm the black sheep of my family. I come from a medical family. My father desperately wanted me to go into medicine, but the first sight of blood, I'm down on the floor. It just, (laughs) I had to go in a different direction. I went into law really to be a business lawyer, and I spent 15 years practicing business law in New York and in London. But technology was always of interest to me. In fact, my older brother, who's also a black sheep of the family, is a technology engineer and a a kind of a Silicon Valley OG. He was involved in developing some of the protocols for the early internet as head of technology at Cisco Systems. And so anyway, technology has always been in the blood. In fact, my father, a physician, experimented with some early ultrasound technology and brought the use of that into surgical practice. And so as a lawyer, I actually developed a technology practice in the first wave of the internet the Internet of Information, representing a number of European tech startups getting capital in the United States and selling their goods and services. As a result of that, in 2000, after I was practicing law about 16 years, a client of mine asked me to help them build some of the first electronic trading systems for sophisticated over-the-counter products, instruments called swaps. And over a course of eight years, we built out this firm, rolled it out into 18 cities around the world, took the company through rounds of private equity, eventually took it public. And in 2008, we had emerged as the world's largest trading venue for a type of swap called a credit default swap. And when that financial crisis hit, we were the marketplace where 80% of these instruments trade globally. I mean, it was really quite remarkable what we had built. That was really one of those critical moments both in the markets, obviously, the 2008 financial crisis, but in my own life. During the days leading up to the failure of Lehman Brothers, we were in direct contact with the Federal Reserve because only in our markets could you actually see the deteriorating credit quality of the world's largest financial institutions. As a result of that, I really felt, gosh, regulators need a better way of understanding the credit conditions of the largest financial institutions than simply calling to shops like mine and asking us to explain what was going on in the trading floor. And so I became a supporter of some of the core provisions of what's called Title VII of the Dodd-Frank Act. Those are the reforms to the swaps market. 
And I was supportive of them largely because they already reflected what the street was already doing. It reflected best practices of moving that marketplace into central clearing, of having standards for the behavior of the intermediaries in there, and also creating regulatory transparency into the market. You were working on clearing credit default swaps around the time of the 2008 financial crisis. You began to voice your views, having been sort of, in essence, a market practitioner about the regulatory arrangements. You took almost sort of a vocal view on the issue of regulation, the kinds of regulation that were needed after the financial crisis in the context of Dodd-Frank, which was like the rules of the game that were set up after the financial crisis. What was your position and how was that different than some other folks on Wall Street? I'm a free marketeer. I think that the American way of life is built upon men and women being able to go into the marketplace and express their view. But I, I do believe there is a right role for regulation in that. Again, being on the street, there are a few bad apples. And if regulation does anything, it's remove the bad apples so that the good people can do what they do day in and day out to make our markets healthy. That portion of Dodd-Frank that dealt with swaps, when it actually assembled reforms that the marketplace were already making, I felt it was the right thing. And I issued, a, I was the head of our trade association. I put out a statement saying, we think Congress got this part right. And so kudos, let's give the politicians their due when they do get it right. You got it right, folks. And so I made that statement. It must have been taken notice by the Obama administration, because in 2013, when a seat on the CFTC opened up, I was contacted, would I like to serve at the commission? And quite frankly, I'm the grandson of a World War II vet who served his country with honor and distinction. I didn't have the privilege of serving my country. My older cousins and family friends went off to Vietnam. I was too young for that. I never got to serve my country. And I thought the opportunity to serve five-year enlistment, as you will, at the CFTC was a way of giving back. I had enjoyed my time on Wall Street. I had benefited from it with the IPO of our company. And I thought, here's an opportunity to give back. I signed up for a five-year hitch. And in the last two and a half years of the Obama administration, I had no idea what would happen in 2016 when President Trump was elected. He named Gary Cohn, CEO of Goldman Sachs, as his national economic counsel. And I've known Gary for years. And I think a day after Gary was named, he called me up and said, are you enjoying your time at the CFTC? I said, I am. I've got two and a half years left to go. He said, would you like to be chairman? I'll recommend it to the president-elect. And the next thing I know, on, on Inauguration Day 2017, I was sworn in as acting chairman, and then the president gave my nomination to the Senate. And to my great delight, I was unanimously confirmed. In fact, I'm one of the very few high appointee Trump administration representatives to have been unanimously confirmed, which proves one of two things. Either, as is probably the case, uh, most senators don't know what the CFTC does, or else I hadn't pissed off enough of them during my first two and a half years one or the other, but it was, a, it was a great honor. It's something I carry with me with pride. I'm sure your listeners know the SEC, our sister agency, and the SEC's mission is to assemble capital, to be a place where capital is formed, where capital is transferred. And what is capital? It's the lifeblood of an enterprise so that it can grow and expand. That's not what the CFTC does. Enterprises have another element, and that's risk. The CFTC oversees markets for the assembly or the transfer of risk or the pricing of risk. If you're an enterprise, you've got the risk of commodities like energy resources or raw materials or labor force or capital. And the CFTC oversees markets where the risk of movement in those instruments are mitigated and balanced. So very different mission. SEC, capital formation, CFTC, risk identification, pricing, and transfer. And so they serve very different markets. 
One of the things, Chris, that strikes me is like you guys deal a lot with agriculture. Less than you think. So up until the 1970s, the world only had a basis for pricing risk in agricultural products using agricultural futures. But in the 1970s, a group of very smart Americans, mostly based in Chicago, people like Leo Malamud and Dr. Richard Sandor, invented something that people don't recognize how groundbreaking it is. And that is financial futures. The ability to identify price and mitigate risk in exchange rates and interest rates. And it was only that invention, by the way, priced in US dollars, that allowed the world to move off the gold standard. Up until that time, the world's currencies had to be benchmarked to one standard so they could move against each other. Once we went off that standard, we needed a way to hedge the risk. Otherwise, you'd never have the type of globalization and multinational corporation structures that you have. That brilliant invention was so powerful that their worry was if it was put under the SEC's jurisdiction, it would be hindered and perhaps destroyed. And so they approached the Ford and the Carter administrations about taking a bureau out of the Department of Agriculture, creating the CFTC and giving it a mandate for product innovation for market steadiness. And that's the CFTC. And so the CFTC has very different antecedents and it has a very different charge. Its charge is new product innovation and development. And as a result, more new products since the 1970s have been originated under CFTC jurisdiction than under every other market regulator in the world combined. It's remarkable what an engine for innovation this regulator has been. And so, again, to me, it was amazing realization that a regulatory agency can actually serve a role in product innovation. And the CFTC has done that. And it's no surprise that the world's first marketplace for any type of crypto, first regulated marketplace, took place under CFTC jurisdiction. And today, the world's only regulated market for crypto is under CFTC jurisdiction. What is a cryptocurrency, Chris? So let me actually start at the beginning. From the dawn of time until today, there's one form of currency that's inherent to our human experience that we intuitively understand. And that's the dollar bill in your pocket. That's the coin in your pocket. These are called tokens. They are tokens of value. And whether it was originally a bead or a shell or wampum or a metal coin with an emperor's head on it or a dollar bill today, that we intuitively understand. When you go into a sandwich shop and pay with a $10 bill, all that has to happen is the verification of that $10 bill. Nobody needs to know you're Dan Rundy, where you bank, how much money's in your bank, what's your social security. No, 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 no. They just need to look at the bill itself. There's one shortcoming, however, in tokenized money, and that is it's effectively a local instrument. And during the age of discovery, European merchants figured out that their Dutch guilders didn't work very well in Venice. So instead of taking their guilders with them to Venice, they would put them in the basement of the Bank of Amsterdam and get something back called a banknote. A banknote was a credit instrument of that bank. They could take that to Venice and trade with it, and it took off. Today, 90% of the money in circulation are not tokens. They're bank credit instruments. If you use a credit card, a debit card, a check, Zelle, Venmo, when you get your 401k statement from Fidelity, all of that are credit instruments of a bank. Now, that system works pretty well today. When you go into the sandwich shop and you want to pay with anything other than cash, it'll work. However, here's the shortcomings of this system. Somebody does need to know that you're Dan Rundy. 
Somebody does need to know that you bank with Wells Fargo and that you've got $5,000 in the bank and that bank is good for the money. And so the system we have today of banknotes is workable, but it has three shortcomings. It requires identity. And if you're one of the billion and a half people out of today's 8 billion people in the world that do not have identity, you are excluded from that system. It's also slow and it's expensive. It takes three days to cash a check and settle it. It takes seven days to move money around the world in many cases. And it's also expensive. A lot of people have to be paid to validate all that identity, that you're Dan Rundy and where you bank and how much money's in your bank, et cetera, et cetera. I go to the sandwich shop and I use that credit card. There's like multiple toll gates, checkpoints before that money's moved. Even if it's Zelle or Venmo, it's the same thing, okay? It's just a little faster, but it's the same thing. And that's why 1% to 2% of the world's GDP is just used to move money around the world. It's almost like the old phone system where you have to pay all that money to call Europe. But meanwhile, that's moved on. That doesn't happen anymore because it's all done on the internet. And yet our money system is still that same old, same old analog system. So what is digital money? What is cryptocurrency? It's a return to tokenized money. In other words, we use an algorithm to validate the same validation of that $10 bill. You know, you'd hold it up to the light and check the watermark. Now you use an algorithm to check it. So when you pay for the sandwich with digital money, it's a direct transfer from you to that shopkeeper, from your digital wallet to their reader, and they've got the money immediately. They don't need to know you're Dan Rundy. They don't need to know where you bank. The algorithm confirms your money and the shopkeeper's got value right away. He's not waiting 30 days to get paid on his MasterCard bill. He's got the capital right away at virtually no cost instantaneously. Cryptocurrency mirrors the tokenized money system. Now, there's thousands of different cryptos and they all have different characteristics. It's said that there are three characteristics of money as payment, as a measurement of value, and as a store of value. They are all better or or worse at these different tasks. Bitcoin is not a very good payment system, but it's actually a very good store of value as witnessed by people voting with their wallets of putting money into Bitcoin. And because Bitcoin is limited, it can't be printed out of hand. There's a limited amount. It's actually serving to be a very good store of value vis-a-vis the dollar, where 40% of the dollars in circulation today have been created in the last 24 months. And with rising inflation, the dollar is diminishing as a store of value, while Bitcoin seems to be growing as a store of value. Other cryptos have different characteristics, but effectively, it's a return to a tokenized system as opposed to a bank-based banknote system. How does CFTC regulate cryptocurrencies, if I can describe it that way? So the CFTC regulates derivatives on commodities. It doesn't regulate the underlying commodities themselves. First, you might ask the question, but it makes sense, right? You want the CFTC to regulate markets where the price of gold is set and where you can buy gold on a future basis, but you don't want the CFTC regulating jewelry stores in every town center in America. Similarly with grains, you want the CFTC regulating the grain derivative markets, but you don't want them regulating grain elevators across America. Same thing with oil. You don't want CFTC regulating gas stations in every state in America, but you want to make sure that the fundamental price of oil is properly set in these derivative markets. So the CFTC regulates 
derivative futures, derivative swaps, the trading future prices of these core commodities. The more that certain cryptos look like commodities and Bitcoin looks and acts very much like a commodity, then the CFTC regulates the swaps and derivative markets on that. And that was a decision that was made during my time at the CFTC in 2015. We declared Bitcoin to be a commodity. And in 2017, under my chairmanship, we greenlighted the launch of Bitcoin futures, which is really the core step in Bitcoin and crypto becoming the $3 trillion marketplace it is today. Let me put that in context. This total size of the U.S. municipal bond market, which funds the building of roads and airports and schools, is $4 trillion. In a matter of four years, the crypto has become a $3 trillion industry and it shows no signs of slowing down. This is not just a flash in the pan. This is a remarkable evolution in the nature of money. And, you know, if you look at history, Dan, and I've spent a lot of time looking at the history of money, money has been evolving throughout the course of human existence, and it will continue to evolve. It should not be a surprise to anybody the way the Internet has changed retail shopping, the way the Internet has changed photography, the way the Internet has changed entertainment and information that it's going to do the same thing to money and banking that it's done to all those other human activities. To think it's not going to change that, I think, is is naive. It's doing it right before our eyes. And that's the reason I wrote my book, to tell people that money is changing right before our eyes, and we need to all get up to speed on those changes. Oftentimes, I think about cryptocurrencies, people say, oh, that's something that people use in the underworld to do bad things. Why, Why does it have such a kind of a bad reputation? And, 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 you know, it's true. I mean, every new technology, the bad guys get hold of it. You know, uh, as a former head of a law enforcement agency, the CFTC is a major law enforcement activity. I've seen some of the bad use of it. But you know what? Every day we see the bad use of dollars. You know, most criminal activity is still conducted in dollars. It's still dollars stuffed into a briefcase that is the main driver. Once you get the paper dollars, they're awfully hard to trace. And so it's no surprise that this new evolution is criminals are experimenting with it. Yet and in my book, I've got some statistics on that. It's still less than 1% of criminal activity. I mean, the amount of criminal activity done every year, the percentage of it that's done in crypto is a tiny fraction of that. Most criminal activity is still conducted in cash, and it's probably going to be that way for a long time. So I don't want to say that there's no illicit use of crypto. There is. But actually, if you talk to law enforcement people here in America, as I do, they'll tell you actually there's advantages to criminals using crypto because the crypto ledgers, these things called the blockchain, are immutable. Once criminals use it, those records are here forever and it can be traced. You know, it's not a surprise that big hack of the colonial pipeline where the ransom was paid in crypto, law enforcement knows everybody who is involved in that heist because of the immutable ledger created by crypto. And they've returned most of the, of the ransom money, not all of it, but most of it. And the reason they can't get the rest is the criminals are offshore and long gone, but we do know who they were. I would say this to our law enforcement people, let's figure out what tools the cro- crooks are using and then master those tools. It's not like you can ban it. If you ban it, it just goes underground. What we need to do is master it. You know, Look, law enforcement is always a game of, of the bad guys get one step ahead, And then the cops catch up and the bad guys. And that's always going to be the case. But to me, this technology is far more powerful than it's used by criminals. It has the potential to make our financial system much more inclusive. We had a leapfrog 20 years ago with the cell phone revolution. Is this the equivalent for developing countries of the cell phone revolution for money? Absolutely. That is the right analogy. You know, it's funny. The cell phone revolution allowed less developed countries to, in a sense, catch up 
they didn't have the landlines and all that copper infrastructure. They went right to the cell phones. And you know what? We have the same issue today. We have underbanked, excluded populations that you know never set foot in a branch bank. And if they did, they don't have the requisite identity and credit quality to be able to enter into the banking system. But digital money allows them to operate immediately. I'll give you an example. If you were to visit Sierra Leone today and go into the marketplace, you could use their local currency, the Leone, to buy fresh produce and other things. But if you want to buy a Toyota tractor in the in marketplace, it's hard currency only, dollars, euros, right? But digital money may give them the ability to bypass the shortcomings of their own national currency. It won't be long before those vendors that sell major capital goods will accept digital currency of one form or another, maybe Bitcoin, Ethereum, others, where, where their local currency won't. So it's very, very possible. And we're seeing this happen. The Bahamas have developed a new central bank digital currency, the sand dollar. What is a central bank digital currency? So I described what a digital currency is, right? It's a return to a token. And central bank digital currency, I'm convinced that every major central bank in the world within the next decade is going to roll out a digital currency of their own. And one of the reasons is because private digital currencies are just rapidly taking off that $3 trillion of value in digital currency and the billions of transactions that are being done now every day using these digital currencies have got central banks concerned that their own native currencies might fall behind. And so they're rushing. The EU is rushing to roll one out. The Bank of England is doing it. Sweden has done it. And the Chinese are well ahead in this. I think the US will do one as well. Basically, it's a sovereign version of a cryptocurrency. You know, we have non-sovereign cryptos like Bitcoin, Ethereum. Tomorrow, we're going to have sovereign versions of those digital currencies that are going to compete with those non-sovereign currencies in the global marketplace. So let me push a little bit on this issue of, so should we be worried about China creating a central bank digital currency? Is the dollar going to lose its whatever, you know, it's sort of the dollar's been king since at least World War II, maybe. And is it going to be dethroned by Bitcoin? Yeah. So there's many underpinnings of the dollar's role as a global central bank currency, a global reserve currency. And I don't think any one thing is going to undermine the dollar's status. In fact, I the dollar today is probably at a high watermark of its global influence. And yet, throughout history, currencies have always competed. And some have been on top for a while. None of them stay on top forever. And so I think if we're realistic, we always need to think about how do we improve the dollar so that it maintains its dominance. Other countries, like China, that aspire to having a global reserve currency examine the dollar all the time and they look at some of its advantages and wonder, well, what can we do to make our currency more attractive, more powerful? You know, when I say that currencies compete, the dollar actually takes its name from an earlier instrument that was the superior instrument, and that was the Spanish dollar. The Spanish dollar was the currency to have during the period of European exploration of the eastern coast of the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. And the reason, Dan, that the Spanish dollar was superior to all the others, it was minted using new world silver that was more consistently pure than old world silver, meaning it needed less alloy, making it more fungible because one dollar was similar to the next. But here's the other thing. It was minted in such a way that it can be broken to eight equal pieces known as pieces of eight, making it fractionable and therefore easier to use in commerce, requiring less change. 
And that's why we named the dollar after it, because we want to mimic that attractiveness. We want to say this is a great instrument. That is just wild. Exactly. So currencies compete on technological advantages. So as we go from an analog world into a digital world, China's saying, how do we make the digital yuan the superior currency? Ah, we got it. Let's make it digital. Let's record it on blockchains, these digital ledgers. Oh, and if we do that, let's get the majority of the world's patents, which China is now doing on blockchain technology for financial systems. And let's use it to break down the silos that exist today in our financial system. So think about it, Dan. If you want to trade a share of Microsoft, you go to a wirehouse or a discount broker. If you want to put hedge on an oil transaction, you go to a different broker called a futures commission merchant. If you want to do a commercial loan transaction, you're probably dealing with a different intermediary. If you want to do a global remittances, you're dealing with Western Union. In the Western system of banking, there's silo after silo after silo, and crossing these silos costs money and time. So what is China doing? It's designing its digital yuan as a software operating system for the world's first fully networked blockchain-based digital economy. If they succeed in that, that will make the world's fastest growing economy the world's most efficient, and it will send its economy into hyperspeed. China's vision for its digital currency is the most audacious vision for digital currency in the world, bar none. So that's the upside. That's what we ought to be thinking about in our Western 20th century financial system. How do we modernize it to make it a 21st century network blockchain-based financial system? Now, there's a downside to what China's doing because they're also going to use it as an instrument of surveillance. Once everybody in China is on the digital yuan, if you criticize the regime, your digital yuan will be switched off for getting a train out of your village or getting the apartment you want or even maybe enough food to feed your family. So it's going to be used as an instrument of surveillance and censorship. That's not an attractive feature that we want to emulate. But we do want to emulate the vision for a modernized financial system that's more inclusive, lower cost, and much faster. And so for the United States to sit back and see these developments, there is a risk that we don't use this technology to modernize our system and make our currency more attractive in a digital era, simply that we're sitting back, not fully realizing the potential and maybe overstating the risks. We've got to get the balance between understanding and anticipating risk while aspiring to some of the opportunities presented. Is this a way of saying if we don't get our act together, China could steal a march on us and their currency could, in theory, supplant our digital currency down the road? There's a phrase in China, and I, I don't speak Mandarin well enough to express it, but it translated, it means passing on the curve. And it comes from actually horse racing, that when you go into the curve of the oval, there's a tendency to slow down while another horse can go around you. Right now, they see the United States as actually like a deer in the headlights on this new technology. We are not advancing into it the way we advanced into the first wave of the internet, the earlier stage. They see us as somewhat perplexed by it. And China sees that as an opportunity to pass us on the curve in a modernized financial system and a digital currency. And I think their assessment of our situation is quite right. And it's unfortunate. And so I've been an advocate for the United States to accelerate its exploration of digital money. We don't have to make a decision today whether we're going to roll out a digital dollar, but we need to anticipate and experiment with the challenges and opportunities of a digital dollar so that if we decide to roll it out, and I believe the United States eventually will, the work is being done today. My friend and mentor, Dr. Richard Sander, likes to say, if you want to be on time, you've got to start early. If we want to be on time in the nations rolling out digital currency, 
We need to start our work today. Well, this is really sobering, Chris. So the book is called Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money. And I think the message here is, yes, there are some risks to cryptocurrencies, but we need to take some risks. We got to experiment a bit here. We need to have a policy environment that allows for some experimentation and have a rules of the game by regulators like CFTC to help make that happen for us to maintain our leadership as sort of the world's store of value, if you whether it's a real store of value or a digital store of value. Right. Isn't that what, what you're saying? Absolutely, Dan. Free people in a free society have a lot to say about what their money looks like. I wrote the book in part to tell not just people inside the Beltway or already get crypto, but the dentist that I visit once a year or the bookkeeper around the corner or my next door neighbor to tell ordinary people, hey, money's changing right in front of our eyes. The money we use today is going to be very different than 10 years from now. And free people have to make sure that the values that are encoded in that money reflect society's values of economic liberty of freedom from censorship and a right to privacy. We've got to make sure those values, they're not going to be in the digital yuan, but if we make sure they're in a digital dollar, then the dollar will continue to be the world's primary reserve currency for your kids and my kids and our grandkids. From your lips to God's ears, 100% agree. This is really, really interesting. This book, Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money, is a call to action and a wake-up call So I'm really pleased to have had you on my podcast today, but I think we need to be thinking about, you know, how else we can be helping you here at CSIS or elsewhere, because this is a really uh, urgent call to action that you're making. And so it seems as if we're going to have to, not just Washington, but the country's going to have to understand the implications of this this changing technology and how it's going to disrupt, just like, you know, cell phones disrupted things, digital money's going to disrupt things. Dan, I'm in D.C. every other week or so. I'll ping you. We'll get together and we'll make sure your listeners understand how things are changing and and what they need to do to get in the game. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 